Good morning. We want to welcome you to Sunday School of the Air this morning. And it is our privilege to have Dr. Jason Lyle of the Institute of Creation Research. He's going to be sharing during our Sunday School hour this morning, and he will also be with us during the main morning worship service in the next hour. As Director of Research, Dr. Lyle leads a gifted team of researchers and scientists who continue to investigate and demonstrate the evidence for creation. He graduated summa cum laude from Ohio Wesleyan University, where he double majored in physics and astronomy and minored in mathematics. He earned a master's degree and Ph.D. in astrophysics at the University of Colorado. Dr. Lyle specialized in solar astrophysics and has made a number of scientific discoveries regarding the solar photosphere and has contributed to the field of general relativity. After completion of his research at the University of Colorado, Dr. Lyle began working in full-time apologetics ministry, focusing on the defense of Genesis. Dr. Lyle was instrumental in developing the planetarium at the Creation Museum up in Kentucky, writing and directing, directing popular planetarium shows, including the created cosmos. Dr. Lyle speaks on topics relating to science and the defense of the Christian faith. He has authored numerous articles and books demonstrating that biblical creation is the only logical possibility for origins. It is our privilege to have him here this morning, and we're going to ask that Dr. Lyle come at this time and begin his presentation. All right, well, good, uh, good morning, folks. It's a pleasure to be with you today, and I want to talk about dinosaurs. This is a fun topic. It's something that really kind of uh, excited me or re-excited me about the Christian faith, and it's something that evolutionists, you know, they use dinosaurs to try and promote the ideas of evolution and millions of years and things that, that disagree with, with uh, Genesis, and some Christians get confused then because they think, well, how do we, what do we do with dinosaurs? How do we make sense of these things? And, and some people have even said, you know, dinosaurs, maybe they don't even exist. And I'm thinking, well, you know, I've seen fossils of them. Of course they existed. But the question is, how do we deal with these from a biblical perspective? And I want to show you that when you start from the lens of Scripture and you take a look at dinosaurs, it really makes a lot of sense. And so that's what we're going to take a look at this morning. What are dinosaurs? You probably know that they're reptiles, but they are different than, uh, they're different from modern reptiles in, in two ways. Dinosaurs, they were, they're land reptiles. They walked on the land. I mean, they, they could probably spend some time in the water, but they're air-breathing land animals and, uh, because they walked on their legs. And they had large holes in their skulls, and uh, that's one characteristic that separates them from modern reptiles. And then they had their back legs underneath their body, and that's different from modern reptiles. Modern reptiles have their legs out to the side in a, you know, kind of in a sprawling position. Maybe think of a crocodile, something like that, where they kind of uh, have the legs out to the side. And that's really good for sprinting if you wanted to move real quick, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a in lunge on something, that's fine. But for distance, it's better to have your legs underneath your body. And so dinosaurs are more like us with their legs underneath their body. And there are no modern reptiles that have both of those characteristics. So they're a different variety of reptile, one that we don't see today. And it's not just like they're, you know, crocodiles that got big or something like that. Now, the way we understand dinosaurs will be influenced by our worldview, our way of thinking about things. Evolutionists have a worldview. They look at things from the perspective of millions of years and naturalism. And, and, and uh, uh, they have a secular view of history, basically. And when I look at dinosaurs, I look at it from the lens of Scripture. And, and what you determine, what you conclude about these dinosaur fossils is going to be based on your worldview. And so that's why evolutionists, they draw different conclusions about dinosaur fossils than, than I do. It's not because, you know, one of us is necessarily smarter than the other. It's because we have a different way of looking Chris at Lamb. things. You can think of that like a mental lens. 
And when uh, evolutionists look at dinosaurs, they're thinking in terms of the secular view of origins, you know, the earth forming by chance and, and life evolving by chance, death and suffering and so on, evolution. And that's, the, that's why they draw the conclusions that they do. If, on the other hand, creation is true, I look at dinosaurs from the perspective of biblical history. We like to sum that up with the seven C's of history. Creation, God created the perfect world. Uh, corruption, Adam ruined that world. God gave Adam uh, dominion over the earth, and he gave him a choice. And Adam chose poorly, and that, that, that damaged the world. It ruined the world. There was the curse then that, that happened. And then catastrophe, God judged the wickedness of mankind by sending a global flood. Then there was confusion, the confusion of tongues at the Tower of Babel where God split up the different people groups and that's largely responsible for the different, uh, at least the the basic ethnicities that we find today. Uh, Christ, God himself, steps into history and becomes a human being, takes on that human nature in addition to his divine nature and dies on the cross in payment for our sins. And then in the future, there will be a consummation where paradise lost will be paradise restored. Now, if you're looking at dinosaurs from the perspective of biblical history, it really makes a lot of sense. It really makes a lot of sense. That's what we're going to do today. And uh, it, we, we need to shed some of these uh, fallacious ideas that we learn from, uh, from the secular media and things like that and take a look at the actual evidence and we'll see that it lines up with what we'd expect from scripture. So you've heard of uh, virtual reality glasses. We're going to put on our biblical reality glasses and that's going to give us the true view of the universe because after all, God knows how the universe works. He created it. And so the information that he gives us about history is going to be right, just like the information he gives us about salvation is right. And so when we take a look at dinosaurs with our biblical reality glasses, we're going to find, first of all, that dinosaurs, we know they're land animals because, of their, you know, again, they have legs. They're underneath their body. They're air-breathing. And we know that land animals, according to Scripture, were made on the sixth day of creation, the same day that God made human beings. Right, everything that creeps on the earth, God says, was made on that sixth day. Therefore, we must conclude that dinosaurs were made on the sixth day of creation. Right? And that's just a very basic form of logic. That's a syllogism. Dinosaurs are land animals. Land animals are made on day six. Therefore, dinosaurs are made on day six. Very easy. And that means that they, are, they lived at the same time as human beings, not millions of years before human beings, as the secularists teach. That's something that we can conclude deductively from the scriptures. Uh, we know, that means that dinosaurs are not millions of years old, as is commonly taught. You go and see movies like Jurassic Park, or even you, even you read the secular textbooks, they'll say dinosaurs died out 65 million years ago, long before human beings existed. But according to Scripture, all the land animals were made on day six, the same day as human beings. We, lived at, we all lived at the same time. And people, you know, they say, well, is, that's... Can that really be? I mean, wouldn't, you know, you got T-Rex at the same time as Adam and Eve. Wouldn't T-Rex try to eat Adam and Eve? And, you know, people have these views of, of dinosaurs. But the Bible tells us that in the beginning, everything was very good. And that means all the, all the animals that God created uh, were very good as well. And so they're not, they're not monsters. We, you know, we tend to base our, well, most people tend to base their thinking about dinosaurs on Hollywood fiction, movies like Jurassic Park. And those movies are very entertaining, don't get me wrong, but that, that's not reality. The reality is that God doesn't make monsters. God just makes animals, and some of them get very big. And that's, that's impressive. Think of an elephant, for example. I mean, that's a big, that's a very powerful animal. It's not a monster, though. I mean, it's not out to try and kill you. Now, you don't want to make an elephant mad, but at the same time, they're not monsters. God didn't make monsters. Uh, God made animals. There's another, there's another way you could know that these dinosaur fossils are not millions of years old, and that has to do with the nature of death. 
death came into the world as a result of Adam's sin. Doesn't the Bible teach that? By man came sin, and by sin, death, and so on. It teaches that in any number of ways, not only in Genesis, but it's repeated in the New Testament as well. The Bible indeed tells us that death is the penalty for sin. Death is the penalty for sin. And that means that these dinosaur fossils can't, you know, a fossil's a dead thing. And so if you've got death millions of years before Adam sinned, then that means that death is not the result of Adam's sin. In which case, why did Jesus die on the cross, you see? And so all Christianity would be undermined. It wouldn't make any sense if dinosaur fossils were millions of years old. Obviously, these fossils, whenever they formed, it had, it had to have been after Adam sinned because that's the only time that death of living creatures uh, came into the world. And people think, but wait a minute, haven't they dated dinosaur fossils and don't they date them at millions of years? But you see, fossils don't come with little labels attached to them telling you how old they are. It'd be nice if they did, but they just don't. Uh, scientists use... Uh, various kinds of methods to try and date the rocks that surround. Actually, they don't date the fossils themselves, but they try and date the rocks around the fossils using radio, radiometric uh, dating methods and so on. That's, that's a different topic. But these are all based on certain assumptions. My point is, you can't tell just by looking at a fossil how old it is. We can make fossils today. It's not, it's not a problem. You can make them quickly under certain circumstances. And so... Just, be, you know, just because it has a label attached to it. You might see those labels in museums, right? You go to a natural history museum and you see it's got the dinosaur label, you know, 65 million years old. But the labels were attached later. They didn't come that way. And uh, no, we, we don't know just by looking at a fossil how old it is. But we know scripturally they can't be millions of years old because they had to have happened after Adam's sin. And we all agree human beings don't go back 65 million years. Human beings are recent. Even evolutionists concede that. But there's evidence, too. There's scientific evidence that dinosaurs lived not millions of years ago, but much more recently, thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago at the same time as human beings. For example, uh, blood cells. Did you know we found, actually found dinosaur uh, blood cells and soft tissue? Uh, there was actually some uh, T-Rex fossils that they dissolved away the outer portion of the fossil, and inside was soft tissue that still remains of some of these uh, creatures, including... Uh, blood vessels, and you can actually see the individual blood cells there in that image. And this is something that the evolutionists were very reluctant uh, to believe, because how could you possibly have blood cells lasting millions of years? And I want to suggest you can't have blood cells lasting millions of years. Blood doesn't last that long. It decays. And so that suggests that these are much, much younger than that. And we found that this is not the exception. It's the rule. We found that a lot of times if you dissolve away the outer portion of a fossil, you'll find soft, fresh material still preserved on the inside. In fact, we've even used methods like carbon dating. Carbon dating only works on things that are, are that were once alive, basically. It has to have carbon in it. You can't date rocks with carbon dating. But carbon dating tends to be more reliable than these other methods. And we find when we test dinosaur fossils using carbon dating, it always gives you something like thousands of years, never millions or billions, which carbon dating couldn't do anyway. And so the fact that you get an answer suggests that these are much younger than that. What about dinosaur evolution? In most textbooks, they'll say that dinosaurs evolved from a thecodont ancestor, and then they split off you know, into all these different varieties, one kind changing into another. Now, we certainly find different, lots of different varieties of dinosaurs in, in the fossil record. And this is a chart showing the fossils and sort of how far down in the geologic column we find these fossils, which evolutionists interpret as age. They interpret that as millions of years. And so they're saying, see this, this uh, Thecodont ancestor split off into all these different varieties. Lots of evolution happening, right? 
But if you look at the uh, fine print, tinted, tinted areas indicate solid fossil evidence. So all the places where it's red, those are the places that you actually find fossils. Where's all the evolution happening? Where's all the branching happening? All the places where you don't find fossils. Isn't that interesting? And so we don't find any evidence in the fossil record of one basic kind of dinosaur changing into another basic kind. We find different varieties, which is what we'd expect in the creation worldview, because God created animals with the ability to produce different varieties. That's not a problem. We can see that in dogs today. You can get lots of different breeds of dogs, and by selectively you know, breeding them together, you can get different traits, and dinosaurs are the same way. But we find that you don't find one kind changing into another. There's no evidence of that. It's consistent with creation, absolutely consistent with creation. What do dinosaurs eat? So there's a T-Rex there. What's he thinking about eating? Is he eating some of these other animals? What's he thinking about? Well, T-Rex actually had uh, teeth that were up to six inches long with a serrated edge. You're thinking, wow, that, that must give us some insight into what he ate, right? So what did the first T-Rex eat? The first T-Rexes that God created, uh, would they be described as plant eaters Meat eaters, scavengers, or plant and meat eaters. Now, when I ask this question in most places, most people would say, well, he's got to be a meat eater, right? Because after all, we've seen Jurassic Park, and we know that's what they eat, right? <laughs> but in fact, according to Scripture, the first T-Rex would have been a plant eater. Yeah. And uh, that's because the Bible teaches that in Genesis 1, 29 and 30. God speaking to Adam and Eve, he says, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. And then he goes on in verse 30 and says, Also to every beast of the earth, every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, would that include dinosaurs? Are they part of everything that creeps on the earth? Yeah, everything's part of everything that creeps on the earth. He says, I've given every green herb for food, and it was so. So dinosaurs, along with all animals and human beings, were originally vegetarian. And if you're planning to have a hot dog for lunch, that's okay, because that changed, you see, at the time of the flood. God said at the time of the flood, he says, as I gave you the green plants, so I give you the living creatures. And so it's okay to eat meat now. But originally, all organisms, all, uh, all uh, living creatures were vegetarian. It shall be uh, for, for food for you. That's what the Bible indicates. And so the first T-Rex would have eaten plants. There's no doubt based on the scriptures. And, of course, there's another way you could recognize this because, of course, meat, when you're eating meat, I hate to break it to you, but you're eating a dead animal, basically. That's what it is. And there was no death before Adam sinned, right? So dinosaurs couldn't have eaten meat because there would have been no death of, of living animals before Adam sinned. So, of course, they would have been vegetarian originally. At first, T-Rex is thinking about eating plants. And this upsets people because they think, but what about those sharp teeth, right? T-Rex had these incredibly sharp teeth, and, of course, he did. He had, again, teeth that got up to six inches in length with a serrated edge, perfectly designed for ripping and tearing into watermelons and cantaloupes and all sorts of things like that. You see, just because you have sharp teeth doesn't mean you have to eat meat. It just means you have sharp teeth, right? And, of course, there are a lot of things, a lot of plants that really require something sharp to get into them anyway. I mean, you think of a watermelon, that's very, very soft, and yet you have to cut through the exterior to get to the soft stuff on the inside. We take something like a knife, something like a sharp tooth to cut through it, you see. Uh, T-Rex could have just bitten right into one. It wouldn't have been a problem. There are some plants that are very, very 
uh, thick on the outside, and they require sharp teeth to get to the stuff on the inside. And there are animals today that have very sharp teeth that are either vegetarian or like 90% vegetarian. Uh, here's a particular uh, primate who has very, very sharp teeth, and he's primarily vegetarian, only occasionally supplementing his diet with meat. This particular skull, and you notice the very sharp teeth on this creature, you might think, well, that's got to be a meat eater. But we know what this thing eats because it's still alive today. This is the skull of a fruit bat. What do you think a fruit bat eats? Fruit, yeah. <laughs> it's not that hard. And so uh, we know that. So just because animals have sharp teeth doesn't mean they eat meat. It means they can, perhaps, but it doesn't mean they have to. And um, in fact, now, of course, we know that some animals, sometime after Adam sinned, started eating meat because we know they eat meat today. Some of them do, uh, although most of them still don't. Most animals are vegetarian anyway. But, uh, you know, th think of a thing like a lion. Yeah, that's a meat eater today. So at some point after Adam sinned, some of the animals became meat eating. But they don't have to eat meat. And we have an example of a lion, for example. Her name was Little Tyke. She was raised in captivity, and she would not eat meat. 350-pound female lion never ate meat in her whole life. Isn't that interesting? But you need to eat meat. Well, uh, she didn't. She preferred uh, other things. She preferred... Uh, milk and things like that. They try to give her meat because everybody knows that lions require meat to live, right? Well, little Tyke didn't know that, and so she didn't, uh, she didn't like the smell or the taste of meat. She, she would turn away from it, but she sure likes milk. And uh, isn't that interesting? It kind of, kind of reminds us of the way things would have been before Adam sinned and the, the way they will be again, the Bible tells us, at some point in our future. And, of course, that reminds me of verses like Isaiah 11.7, which indicates that the animals, at some point, will go back to their pre-fall diet. Very interesting. It says the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Maybe we're starting to see just the very beginnings of that already today, animals going back to their pre-fall vegetarian diet. So, yes, at some point after Adam's sin, some of the dinosaurs may have become meat-eating, but originally they would have been plant-eaters, and it's not a problem. Okay, why don't we find the word dinosaur in the Bible? That's a question that people ask from time to time. And, you know, if God knew about dinosaurs, why doesn't he mention them? Well, he does, but he's not going to use the word dinosaur because that's a modern word. You see, the word dinosaur was invented in 1841 uh, by uh, Richard Owen. And uh, the, the King James Bible was translated in 1611. The word didn't exist yet. So, of course, you're not going to find the word. It didn't exist. But you will find the word dragon in the King James Bible and in some other translations as well. And the Hebrew word from which it's translated is tanin. And I think that's kind of, it's kind of a generic word, it seems to be. It seems to cover a lot of different varieties of animals, anything that's sort of monstrous or, or even reptilian. And uh, the num here's some of the places. In fact, these are all the verses I could find where dragon is mentioned in the King James Bible. And the last few you see there in, in brackets are places where the same Hebrew word is used, tanin. It's just that, that the King James translators didn't translate it as dragon in those passages, though maybe they should have. But in any case, um, the, I think this is indicating not just dinosaurs, but anything that's, that's sort of monstrous as well, including things like plesiosaurs, which would be a swimming, a swimming reptile, air-breathing, but spends most of its time in the ocean, and so it's not classified as a dinosaur because uh, dinosaurs, by definition, are land animals. And so we actually read about some, what I think are specific varieties, specific kinds of dinosaurs, like in Job uh, chapter 40, verses uh, 15 through 24, we read about a creature called behemoth. And behemoth sort of means beast of beasts, just an incredible animal. And we, when we read the description of it, just to give you a little bit of context, this is the, this is the portion of Job toward the end where Job, we talk about the patience of Job, but he was starting to get impatient toward the end, and he wanted to have a conversation with God. And God, to 
produce to induce humility in Job said, okay, before we have our conversation, let me ask you a few things to see if you are intellectually capable of having a conversation with me. And God just asks question after question after question that Job can't answer. And Job ends up covering his mouth and says, I can't contend with the Almighty. Um, but uh, it, it, part of this chapter, is chapter 40, uh, he talks about God starts comparing his power to a behemoth. And when we read the description of it, it's obviously an animal that Job was familiar with because God's using it as an analogy to show his power. So it's a real animal. And when we read the description of it, it sounds an awful lot like a sauropod dinosaur, one of these dinosaurs that has the long neck and the long tail. Take a look at some of the verses here. Verse 15, look now at behemoth, which I made along with you. He eats grass like an ox. So at the time of uh, Job, uh, this particular animal was still vegetarian. Verse 16, see now his strength is in his hips and his power is in his stomach muscles. And that would be a great description of something like a diplodocus who had very powerful muscles along their stomach, which they needed to support their long neck and their long tail. Verse 17 is interesting because it says he moves his tail like a cedar. A cedar is a tree, of course, a cedar tree. And so when he moves his tail, it's like a cedar tree moving. And I'm thinking that really would fit the description of a sauropod dinosaur, wouldn't it? It would make a lot of sense. Uh, verse 18, his bones are like beams of bronze, his ribs like bars of iron. Verse 19, he is the first of the ways of God or the chief of the ways of God. Only he who made him can bring here his sword. And that's uh, kind of an interesting old English way of saying that only God could attack this animal. You don't stand a chance, right? Only God, his creator, could, could bring a sword near this creature. Anybody else, they're going to be wiped out. And again, now some, some Bibles, by the way, will put in the footnotes, they'll say, you know, behemoth, and they'll have a little footnote, possibly an elephant or a hippopotamus. And the thing you need to remember about the footnotes in your Bible is they're not inspired. Okay, it's the text that's inspired. The footnotes are not. And I don't think there's any chance that this can be an elephant or hippo because the description doesn't fit. You say, well, they're pretty, you know, elephants are pretty big, but uh, does an elephant have a tail like a cedar tree? It does not, does it? An elephant has a tail like a little rope. It does not fit the description of, a, of the behemoth in Job 40, verse 15. Or some people say, well, you know, a hippo. But again, does a hippo have a tail like a cedar tree? It does not. A ta- nothing could be farther from that, right? I mean, an elephant or a hippo has a tail like a little flap. It's not even close to that. So I can't, I can't prove for certain that behemoth is a dinosaur, but it's not an elephant or hippo. It's not, a, it's not an animal that we have around today, apparently, at least that, as far as we know. In the next chapter in Job, we read about a creature called Leviathan. And I think this is probably one of these swimming reptiles, uh, like a plesiosaur, that could maybe come up out of the water a little bit, or at least raise its head out of the water, uh, but spends most of the time in the water. So not a true dinosaur, but nonetheless something that evolutionists say lived millions of years ago and has been extinct long before human beings arrived. And yet Job apparently was familiar with this creature because God uses this again to convey his power to Job and say, you know, you can't even conquer this creature, and yet I'm greater than this creature. I made this creature. And so when we read the the description, I'm just going to show you some of the verses here. Verse uh, 1, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? That's a rhetorical question. Can you fish this thing out? Of course not. Verse 9, indeed, any hope of overcoming him is false. Shall one not be overwhelmed at the sight of him? Verse 10, no one is so fierce that would dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand against me? That's a great question. Verse 15, his rows of scales are his pride, shut up tightly as with a seal. So it's a scaly creature. It's a reptile, air-breathing. Uh, verse six, 16, one is so near another that no air can come between them. Verse 22, strength dwells in his neck and sorrow dances before him. And that, that strength dwelling in his neck made me think of one of these long-necked plesiosaurs, perhaps. 
Uh, some people have said, well, again, this is a crocodile. <laughs> but like, the description just doesn't quite fit that of a crocodile because crocodiles can be, you know, they can be captured and it's, it's, not, a, it's not really a problem. I mean, you, again, you've got to be careful. You've got to know what you're doing. But, uh, uh, yeah, crocodiles don't really fit the description of this. And they don't really have strength in their neck. Crocodiles don't have much of a neck, really. They're kind of, they're permanently land-bound. And uh, the, verse 25 says, when he raises himself up, and I'm thinking a crocodile really can't raise himself up more than about a foot. So that doesn't really fit the description. But this creature, when he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid because of his crashings there beside themselves. On earth there is nothing like him which is made without fear. So an incredible creature. Again, one that Job was familiar with. People said, well, this is just an allegory. Well, then God's analogy would be useless, right? Because if God's saying my power is like a fictional creature, that wouldn't be terribly impressive, right? It's obviously a creature that Job was familiar with. And when we read this in context, God has listed other creatures before that that are creatures that are still alive today that we know about. They're not mythical or anything like that. Uh, Some of the verses, and I didn't list all of them here. You can read this on your own. Some of the verses here refer to Leviathan as being able to have sort of flames or smoke goes out of his nostrils and and sort of flames or sparks leap out of his mouth. And so people say, well, that's got to be mythical. Then you've got a fire-breathing dragon there, right? I mean, that can't be real, right? And I'm thinking, well, scientifically, why not? Can you give me a scientific reason why God could not create an animal that could produce some kind of flame? Because, in fact, God has produced animals that can produce some kind of something like a flame. There's an animal called a bombardier beetle, which is able to mix chemicals along with a catalyst in its abdomen and produce kind of a hot spray to protect it from predators. It's, it's very much like the description of, uh, in terms of its ability as to what the Leviathan could do. There's no reason why God couldn't create a larger creature that could do that uh, with its mouth. No, no reason at all why God couldn't do that. God's made lots of interesting creatures that have abilities that would be hard to believe if you hadn't seen it. If we just found the fossil of an electric eel, you'd probably never know that it could generate you know, voltage, high voltage electricity, but it can. God's made some amazing creatures. And there's nothing scientifically wrong with uh, an animal that's, that has the ability to produce a flame like that. And we'll come back to that later. It's very interesting. But my point is it's not a crocodile because crocodiles can't do that. What about flying reptiles? Again, not true dinosaurs, because dinosaurs are land animals, but what about these flying reptiles that evolutionists say lived millions of years ago? Well, you know, the Bible talks about those too. In Isaiah 14, 29, it talks about a fiery flying serpent. Isn't that interesting? A flying serpent, a flying reptile. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 6, the viper and the fiery flying serpent. And the, the word fiery there, the Hebrew word, can either mean vividly colorful or poisonous, and we're not sure which of those fits, but... Uh, Anyway, we, we think those are probably descriptions of a Ramphorhynchus. There were basically, uh, some, there were some different varieties of flying reptiles. There were the pterodactyloids, which had huge wingspans, but a very short tail. And then the Ramphorhynchoids, which were small, but had a very long tail. And I think these are probably descriptions of uh, Ramphorhynchoids. Uh, Ramphorhynchus, and there's good evidence. Well, I'll come, I'll come back to that a little bit later. But uh, certainly, the Bible talks about flying reptiles. There's no doubt about that. Here's a question that the critics ask. Were dinosaurs on Noah's Ark, and would they fit? Were dinosaurs on Noah's Ark, and would they fit? Were they on Noah's Ark, first of all? Well, what does Genesis say? Genesis 7, verses 8 through 9, of clean animals and animals that are not clean, and birds, and everything that creeps on the ground, would that include dinosaurs? They're part of everything, right? They're air-breathing land animals. Uh, There went into the Ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as as God had commanded Noah. 
And so the animals came to Noah two by two, uh, seven of some of the clean kinds, but there are relatively few clean kinds. But of everything that creeps on the ground, in which is the breath of life, was on board Noah's Ark. So every air breathing, we, we're not sure what the phrase, in which is the breath of life, we're not exactly sure what that means, but it could refer to vertebrate animals. But in any case, dinosaurs would certainly be in that, in that category. And this is where critics say, well, we got you here then, because there's no way you could possibly fit dinosaurs on board Noah's Ark, right? It's just, there's no way, because dinosaurs were big, and we've all seen those children's books of, of um, Noah's Ark, and there's no way you could get them on there. But it seems to me that you need to ask the critic a couple of questions here, if he's going to say you couldn't possibly fit all those animals, including the dinosaurs, on Noah's Ark. It seems to me you have to ask two questions. First of all, how big was Noah's Ark? And then secondly, how many animals would have to go on board so that you could do a calculation, right? And you know, the funny thing is most critics can't answer either of those questions. They say, well, I just don't think you could possibly get all those animals on Noah's Ark. They say, excuse me, do you know how big Noah's Ark was? And they'll say, well, no. And they'll say, do you know how many animals would have to go on board? And they'll say, well, no. But I just don't think you could get all those animals on Noah's Ark. But you see, when you make an argument that you couldn't possibly fit an unknown number of animals on a boat of unknown size, that is not a logical argument, is it? That's not logical at all. Well, we don't have to guess about question one. We know how big Noah's Ark was because the Bible gives us the dimensions. It gives, us to, it gives it to us in cubits. We don't know exactly what a cubit is. We know it's the length span from the elbow to the end of the hand there, but that can be a little different for different people. But it's something like 18 inches. And even if you use the minimum cubit of 17 and a half inches, this is the smallest Noah's Ark could possibly have been. More realistically, it was about 450 feet by 75 by 45 tall. And so it's, uh, it was big. It was huge. And, you know, it's really a shame because you see in most children's literature little, these little bathtub arcs, right? And uh, it's, it's kind of, a, it's really a shame because that's not what the Bible describes. This little bathtub thing with all the animals jam-packed on board and they're all happy and smiling even though the world's being destroyed. I never did understand that. But uh, why is it that most bathtub arcs look like that? But the arc that the Bible describes is enormous. It had the same capacity as 522 railroad stock cars. It was huge, absolutely huge. And, uh, of course, you could imagine Noah's discomfort if God had given the instructions for a little bathtub ark. He'd say, you know, are you sure about this, God? Uh, no, God knows how to design a boat. He designed the universe. He can design a boat. And, of course, uh, we need to remember God was the one that designed the ark, gave the dimensions, at least, to uh, Noah. Maybe other information that's not recorded, but at, ver at the very least, the dimensions of the ark. And... Uh, yeah, and Noah had to build it, of course, but God gave him the instructions. You see, the problem with little bathtub arcs is they tip over very easily in a worldwide flood, and so that's just not going to work. But the ark that God designed is optimal for weathering a worldwide flood. Uh, I actually met up with an engineer a while back who had studied this project, and a uh, very, very brilliant guy. And he, he uh, did some studies showing you that if you change the dimensions of the ark significantly, it becomes less, either less stable or less... Uh, comfortable in terms of the ride. The ark is optimized in terms of its dimensions to weather a worldwide flood. How about that? How did, how did Noah know that? It's almost like he had some kind of divine insight into this. And, of course, he did. So Noah's ark was absolutely enormous. There's no, there's no problem there. But was it big enough? How many animals would have to go on board Noah's ark? And you say, well, two of each kind. But what's a kind? Well, the Bible describes kinds as being sort of the, we think it's sort of the reproductive limit of an organism because God brought two of each kind to preserve life, to preserve their families. 
And so you wouldn't need to bring, for example, two beagles and two dachshunds and two uh, Dalmatians and, and two cannon dogs and two pinchers. And you certainly, certainly don't need two poodles on board Noah's Ark, right? All you need are two dogs. And you can get all those varieties later. God has programmed into the genetic code of a dog to get all kinds of different varieties because of the, the way the genes are arranged. And there being two different, you know, you get two copies. You get one copy from dad, one copy from mom in terms of your DNA. You can get all kinds of different varieties later on. It's not a problem. Get lots of different breeds of dog from two. You can even get different. So in some cases, you can get different what's called species, but they're still the same kind. They're still the same kind. You can get different species of mosquitoes due to genetic drift. And they, you know, they go off and they wander off in a cave for 100 years. And due to genetic drift, they're no longer able to interbreed with mosquitoes outside. And so they're classified as a different species, but they're still mosquitoes. They're still the same kind. And so it's the same with the dinosaurs. You wouldn't need to take two uh, triceratops and two monoclonius and, and two leptoceratops and two protoceratops and so on. You just need two of the ceratopsian kind. You see, these are all just different breeds. As far as we can tell, those are different breeds of the same kind. They might be classified as different species. That's okay. But they're still the same kind. They're still the same kind. So it's not a problem. And although there are over 600 dinosaur names, there are only about 50 dinosaur kinds. With all, you can get all those varieties you know, just due to selective breeding within the, within the kind there. So how many dinosaurs would have been on Noah's Ark if there are 50 kinds? You take two of each kind, 100 dinosaurs on board Noah's Ark. That's it. That's all you'd need. And you say, but wait a minute. They're huge, though, 100, 100 of these enormous animals. But we need to remember that dinosaur, not all dinosaurs were big. Some dinosaurs were very small, like little Compsognathus, which was the size of a chicken. That's all the bigger it got. Okay, only some dinosaurs got big. Some of them were very, very small. And you need to remember that even the very large dinosaurs started out very small because the largest dinosaur eggs we find are just about twice the size of a football, if that. Just about that big. And it turns out you can't make an egg bigger than that anyway due to, due to physics because you'd have to make the shell thicker to support the weight and then oxygen couldn't get through. So there's a maximum size for an egg. And even the largest T-Rex or the largest sauropod dinosaur hatched from an egg about this big. So how big did it start out? Well, it had to fit in that egg, so it must have started out about that big, right? Uh, yeah, so uh, if it, make, it would make sense maybe for God to take some of the younger dinosaurs on board Noah's Ark. No, he didn't have to go out and hunt them down. God said two of each kind will come to you. God brought the animals to Noah. And it, makes, it would make sense to me for God to bring maybe some maybe some young adult dinosaurs where they hadn't reached their full size, but they're still mature enough to reproduce after the, after the flood because that was the purpose of them, to keep their, their kinds alive. And so I don't see why God would bring senior citizen dinosaurs on board Noah's Ark if their sole purpose was to reproduce afterwards. It would make sense to bring young adults. And so when you add it up, we know the space available on Noah's Ark, 450 feet by 75 per deck, and there are three decks. That gives you the square footage. The space required, that we can estimate that at least. It's, it's hard to know exactly, but you can at least estimate. The birds don't take up much space at all because most of them are very small. Mammals take up the most space because there are the most of them. Reptiles, including the dinosaurs, and only of, of that number, 15,700, only 100 of those are dinosaurs, remember. You add it all up. And you find that the animals take up less than half the space on board Noah's Ark. So you see, when you actually do your homework on this issue, you find that the critics, they really can't, they can't support their, their claim. They can't. There's plenty of room on board Noah's Ark to fit all of the uh, dinosaurs. And there was room left over for uh, people, right? 
and for food supplies and things like that. And anything Noah wanted to take with him, he couldn't come back and get it later. So, uh, yeah, there's plenty of space on there. So Noah's Ark was huge and, and was plenty big enough to accommodate the dinosaurs. And we know they would have been on board Noah's Ark because two of every air-breathing land animal was. And so if they got on the Ark, they must have got off the Ark, yes, because they, they, uh, after the flood, they went, they went away, um, departed from the Ark. And so that being the case, if dinosaurs survived the flood even, we might actually expect to find some reports, ancient legends of people encountering dinosaurs, right? And do we find that? Well, they're not going to be called dinosaurs because that's a modern word invented in 1841. They're going to be called dragons. Do we find legends of people encountering dragons? You bet we do. Absolutely we do. All over the, all over the world we find legends of people encountering dragons. And could it be that, that many of these legends are actually, actually have a basis in fact? Maybe some of them have been distorted as they've been passed down by word of mouth. I mean, most of these are not in Scripture, right? Except for the Job passages that we talked about. Most of these legends are not in Scripture, so they're not infallible. But it could be that they, are, that they happen just like, they, uh, like the legends say. There's a legend of St. George and the dragon. The legend is that there was a town being victimized by a uh, dragon that was eating all their livestock and so on, and the villagers were afraid of it. They were going to sacrifice a young lady to this creature, hoping it would leave them alone. The legend is that St. George rides into town and kills the dragon and, and actually preaches the gospel, and the town converts to Christianity. It could, be, it could be a myth, but at the same time, it could, be, it could have happened just that way. We have found fossils of baryonyx in that particular region uh, in, in England in 1983. We found some baryonyx fossils there. It could have happened just like that, just like that. Marco Polo in AD 1271 reported that the Chinese royal chariots were occasionally pulled by dragons. Isn't that interesting? And uh, apparently the thing to do if you were wealthy in China was to raise dragons because they were apparently rare at that time, and so it was sort of a novelty to have one of the few remaining, uh, what I think were dinosaurs. In the year 1611, the Chinese emperor appointed the position of royal dragon feeder. We know from history that there, that there was a job, and your job was to feed the dragons, which makes me think there were probably dragons to feed, okay? I mean, this, this isn't the Obama administration, so I think they actually had to do something in their job. Anyway, that's a separate topic. <laughs> Um, there's a, actually a city in France that was renamed in the honor of the killing of a dragon there. How about that? And when you read the description of it, it's described as being uh, larger than an ox and had, and had uh, pointed horns on its head. Isn't that interesting? It sounds a lot like one of these ceratopsian kinds of dinosaurs, like a triceratops maybe, or one of these other uh, ceratopsian varieties. There is a uh, legend of a uh, creature that was described so accurately, we think we even know what species it was. We think it was a Tanistrophius. And there's a town in Italy where a peasant was, uh, he was walking his cart, uh, oxen were pulling his cart, he was walking behind them, and there was this little hissing dragon on the road up ahead of them. And it was not one of the bigger ones, one of the smaller varieties. And the, but it was it was very brave little creature, and the oxen were afraid of it, they wouldn't go near it. And uh, this, this uh, Italian peasant, he, ended up, he had a rod with him, and he ended up striking it on its head and killing this creature. And he brought the body in to a local scientist, Ulysses Aldervandus, who carefully studied the carcass of this creature and said it's unquestionably a reptile, and one unlike any others he had seen. And by his descriptions of it, we think, we, we think it's a tanistrophius. He described it so precisely. Something that evolutionists say lived millions of years ago, and yet people apparently uh, interacted with him. Uh, Ramphorhynchus, one of the two varieties of uh, 
the major varieties of flying reptiles. This, again, is the small version with the long tail. And we find records, all kinds of records, of Ramphorhynchus relatively recently. Uh, Herodotus, for example, one of the Greek historians who confirmed many of the events of Scripture, he says there's a place in Arabia, he says, where I went to learn about the winged serpents. He'd heard about these flying reptiles. He goes to this town. He wants to see them for himself. He says, when I arrived there, I saw innumerable bones and backbones of serpents, many heaps of backbones, great and small, and even smaller. So he finds a valley full of dead Ramphorhynchus, apparently. And he goes on to describe them. He says, winged serpents are said to fly from Arabia at the beginning of spring, making for Egypt, but the ibis birds encounter the invaders in this pass and kill them. And so, uh, again, winged serpents, flying reptiles, as we'd say in the modern tongue. He says, the serpents are like water snakes. Their wings are not feathered, but very like the wings of a bat. He goes out of his way to say, this isn't a bird. This is not a feathered creature. The, the wings are like a membrane, kind of like a, like a bat, but it's a serpent. It's a reptile. And so he's very clearly describing a flying reptile. Not only do we have ancient legends of this creature, we have it appearing on ancient coins. You can see serpents, but with wings. Isn't that fascinating? You find that on some ancient coins. So not only do we find legends of people encountering things that sound an awful lot like dinosaurs, we find pictures of them, drawings of them. You probably know that some people in the past lived in caves. That's a question people ask me sometimes. Do you believe in cavemen? Well, yeah, there are men that lived in caves. And people sometimes did live in, there are people that live in caves today. I mean, that happens. And so, uh, I mean, it's kind of a convenient way to, uh, uh, to live. I mean, you've got this nice little place carved out for you. A lot briefly lived in a cave, right? So, uh, and people sometimes painted on the cave walls or even, or even you know, chiseled out on the, on the cave walls. And you probably know they drew things like people and buffalo and sauropod dinosaurs. Yeah, those are some actual uh, petroglyphs of what appear to be a sauropod dinosaur. We've had, it's hard to see on the PowerPoint, so we've enhanced it for you on the right a little bit. And likewise with this one, we've enhanced it on the right. But it looks an awful lot like a dinosaur with a long neck and a long tail, these sauropod dinosaurs. Uh, pretty clear, really. There is a, uh, if you go to France, there are some sculptures, ancient sculptures. And these were done before dinosaur fossils had been found. Dinosaur fossils weren't really found in any abundance until the 1800s. And these are much older than that. So apparently people actually saw the living animals. And you can see it's got scales on it, and it looks an awful lot like certain kinds of dinosaurs. It looks like a large reptile uh, with legs underneath its body rather than out to the side. It's not like a crocodile. And some of them even have the flames uh, going out, you see. So apparently people saw these, these creatures that were able to produce a bit of flame, and they, and they match known kinds of dinosaurs, some of them very, very well. Uh, we find them on ancient tapestries, for example. Uh, it looks like a, a young dinosaur right there, perhaps a uh, uh, myosaurus, for example. It does, it does seem to match known kinds of dinosaurs. This is, this is very ancient. This is thought to be close to 4,000 years old. It's from China, and it's a, uh, a little sculpture of what looks an awful lot like a, a ceratopsian type of uh, dinosaur. Isn't that interesting? And again, 4,000 years ago, so this was long before... Dinosaur fossils had been discovered. Apparently, people actually saw the creatures. And here's another example of something that looks an awful lot like a, a protoceratops. Bishop Bell's uh, tomb in Carlisle Cathedral. Now, we know when the guy died. We know this tomb was constructed in 1496. We know that. And it's got these brass strips along the sides and along the top and bottom. And there's actually a carpet that goes over, over this, and people walk on it. And so the um, the, the strip at the bottom has been just worn with time. But the other ones, you can see actual, there are actually animals carved into these brass strips. And there are, for example, you can see 
uh, bats and dogs and fish and birds and something that looks an awful lot like sauropod dinosaurs. Isn't that interesting? And again, this is back, you know, 14, late 1400s. So it's not something that was done after we had figured out how to put the fossils together and everything. Apparently, people saw these uh, actual creatures. There's a temple in Cambodia that has uh, uh, carvings on it, and one of them looks an awful lot like a stegosaurus. How about that? Isn't that interesting? With the, one of these plated dinosaurs. And there are legends in the um, Australian Aborigines, for example, of a creature that they believe still lives in Lake Galilee, and it's, it looks an awful lot like a plesiosaur. That's their painting of it. And so all kinds of things like this. I'm going to skip some of these for time's sake. Uh, but um, hopefully you get the point. Dinosaurs were formed. They were made by God on the sixth day. They fell. When, when Adam sinned, the world became corrupted and ruined as a result of that. There was a worldwide flood in which most of the dinosaur fossils, we think, were formed during that flood year. But dinosaurs were on board, at least the representative kinds, were on board Noah's Ark. And so throughout time, maybe the conditions after the flood were not quite as conducive to reptilian life, and so they faded from history with time and thought to be extinct today. I guess there's could, there could be still be some kinds alive, though, just in remote parts of the world. I suppose it's possible. And if finally dinosaurs were found, they were rediscovered in the 1800s when we started finding fossils of these marvelous creatures. And well, we need to remember that the secularists we use dinosaurs to try and reel people in and say, see, evolution's true. We need to remember that. We need to remember that Christians are not the only fishers of men. And if the secularists can use dinosaurs and use fiction about them to sway people to believe in evolution, why can't we use the truth about dinosaurs to show people that God's word is true from the beginning? Amen? And we have lots of resources that I encourage you to get. We brought some of our resources here today. I don't think we have ones on uh, dinosaurs here today. We have Creation Basics and Beyond, for example. There's, that covers everything you ever wanted to know about creation, and we're afraid to ask. That's it, all in that one book. I've got a, a wonderful resource called The Ultimate Proof of Creation. gives you a bulletproof argument for biblical creation. My latest book, Understanding Genesis. Does Genesis really mean that God created in six days? If you've ever run across someone who says, well, it doesn't really mean that, this is the book that you need to get and read and then give to them to read, okay? Because it's going to show you that Genesis really does mean what it says, and it's to be interpreted in a straightforward fashion. Lots of resources that we have. We have some of them here today. The rest of them you can get um, on our website, which is... Uh, icr.org. We have a sign-up sheet, too, if you want to sign up for our free uh, Acts and Facts newsletter. And it is free, so no catch there. And check us out on the web as well, icr.org. And I want to thank you very much for having me out to speak. Really appreciate it. Thanks.